All right, welcome to another episode of TV Scan Stories, where neighbors meet neighbors. Today we have Ramya Sundara. She is the Director of Environmental Science at the Kiwi Skin Community Foundation. And today we're talking about manatees. Before we do that, we have a quick word from our sponsors. The Academy of Martial Arts in Kiwi Skin, more commonly known as RDCA, is proud to have served as Ellen Paradise for 27 years. Join them for a free introductory class to kickstart your martial arts journey. RDSA is a family-run business headed by Sensei Robert Zoglu with his daughter and son, Morgan and Derek, both senseis as well. With over 100 years of combined martial arts experience between the Zoglu senseis, RDSA provides a holistic approach to self-defense, covering a unique blend of stand-up, close-quarter combatives, technical groundwork, weapons training, and traditional form. Over 3,000 students have walked through the doors and trained on the mat at RDCA in the last two and a half decades. You can call them at 305-365-0129 or visit their website at rdcamma.com for more information in the show notes. So Rumia, how are you doing today? I am doing okay. I'm a little tired today. I have been up since about five o'clock this morning since I do sea turtle nest evaluations at Bilbag State Park and I had that this morning. So running a little low on the batteries. <laughs> That's a great way to start. So what is a sea turtle evaluation? You say you woke up at five? Yeah. So uh, we start uh, right around sunrise basically. So I just you know, I have to get up early and get ready and it takes me about half an hour to get out there. Basically every day we have different teams. Today I was actually just filling in. I usually do Thursdays. We go out every single day to check for new nests, mark any new nests that we find, check all of the previous nests that have already been marked. You know, we're looking for signs of raccoons trying to get into the nests or anything else or people for that matter. We had one nest poached this year, actually. You know, that's at the beginning of the season. We continue looking for new nests throughout the season. And by around June or so, we start looking for signs of hatching. And so now we're looking for adult tracks coming in and making nests. And we're also looking for little baby hatching hatchling tracks that are leaving the nest and heading out to the water. Once a nest has hatched, we wait three days and then we evaluate the nest, which means that we dig it up. We count the number of shells that have hatched out, how many are whole that never hatched or never developed. If there's any live hatchlings still in the nest, because sometimes that happens, you know, anything like that. So we look at all of that and it gives us an idea of the hatch rate. And that ultimately will give us kind of an idea of how well the species is doing. So you're part of the team that go out there and you put the tapes and the defenses around them? Yes. Once we find a new nest, like we find the mother turtle has made tracks and she made a nest, um, we determine generally where the egg chamber is. And then we do that. We put stakes around it, uh, cover it with a screen to keep, you know, raccoons and hopefully people out and then, you know, mark it for inventory so that we know when it was laid. So we have an idea of when it'll hatch. Uh, that way we can keep track of it. Why so early in the morning? Does it have to do with the arrival times? The turtles themselves come out at loggerheads is what we're usually looking for. We had one leatherback nest this year, uh, which is unusual for us. It's no usually like 99.9% .9 loggerheads. They come out at night. And so we want to get to the tracks before anything else like wind blows the tracks away or people trample them, anything like that. And then it's the same with the hatchlings. They also come out at night and they are drawn to the water by the moon and starlight and the reflections in the water to go. And it's one of the reasons that in Florida and most places in Florida, if not the entire state, there are very specific laws and ordinances about having lighting on the beach because it confuses them and they'll go the wrong way. We find a lot in Bill Bags is that the hatchlings, instead of heading from the nest straight to the water, a lot of times they head at an angle and it's because they're heading towards Miami Beach because there's a lot of light coming from Miami Beach. So they make it to the water eventually, but it just takes them a little bit longer than it should. That That is impressive. I did not know that. 
Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a really interesting kind of evolutionary quirk, I guess. They they know where to go for the water, and it's not necessarily the sound, although that probably helps. But it's more about the the lighting. We actually had a nest last week. It had hatched during the night, and we went to go check the nest, and we found a couple hatchlings that were just kind of caught right at the surface. And so you know we pulled them out and released them. They were just super confused. You know, they didn't know where to go. And normally that early in the morning, like the sun is just rising and they'll head straight to the sun. But it was super overcast that day. There's no specific points of light for them to follow. And they were just going all over the place. So, I mean, obviously we help them to the water. You want them to have the time to crawl across the beach because the leading theory is that the turtles come back to the same beach where they were born in order to lay their nests. Spending the time on the beach kind of helps them orient themselves with the magnetic field so they kind of get an idea of where they are so they know where to come back to. Um, But also with the newborns, with the hatchlings, it gives them time to like strengthen their fins before they get to the water because the exercise, the movement from the nest to the water kind of helps them kind of like uncurl themselves a little bit more having been curled up in a ball in the the egg, you know, helps them kind of build a little bit of like muscle or get their muscles used to moving before they get to the water. So we try to just, you know, let them go and make their own way to the water. But obviously, if they're having trouble or, you know, if there's something going on, like in this case, there was no points of light for them to follow. They were just going in every single direction. And, you know, we ended up kind of helping them to get to the water. So normally they happen at night, you know, because of the moonlight and stuff. But it's normally it is possible to catch it when the sun is up already. I've seen yes. sometimes you see videos of people like... Yeah, they see a, t- a nest yeah. hatching. Yeah, yeah, it does happen. It's it's very uncommon. We're not really sure why that happens. It's possible once the nest starts hatching, the other hatchlings within the eggs will start feeling like the movement and vibrations of their brothers and sisters within the nest. And so then they all start coming out. That's why they all come out like at the same time. One, it's a numbers game for them. So the more of them that come out at once, the less likely that be predated by some uh, animal, some kind of predator. But it's also possible that some kind of vibration or something from the surface might stir them enough to cause them to to hatch during the day. Or it might just be chance, like, you know, just for some random reason, somebody in the nest woke up and, you know, busted out of his shell and just woke everybody else up and they left. Yeah, I mean, it definitely happens occasionally. You see them like three o'clock in the afternoon, which is not ideal. One, because like there's usually people all over the beach. They're uh, more prone to being grabbed by a predator and it's really hot, which it makes it more difficult for them. They get tired more quickly in the heat as opposed to when it's dark outside when it's much cooler. So there's a lot of reasons that coming out at night is better for them. But it's yeah, there are these like random occasions when when they just hatch at some strange time during the day that's you know not normal or expected so we should talk about manatees which is what we originally talked about uh doing a show for even though you know, turtles has been it's everybody likes turtles yeah, too so <laughs> i guess we can start from the top what are manatees manatees are uh they're marine mammals interestingly close their closest terrestrial relative are elephants they are evolved from a common ancestor Yeah, elephants, manatees have a a weird sort of like evolutionary, I don't know, branching or their common ancestor, I should say, does. This common ancestor branched into manatees or serenia, which are just, you know, anything related to a manatee. There's three different species of manatees and a dugong, which is similar to a manatee, but lives in the uh, uh, Western Pacific and Indian Oceans. And then there are elephants. And then there's what's called a hyrex, which 
looks like a rodent. It's about the size of a cat, maybe a little larger. And they are all related to each other, which is... But if you notice on a manatee's flipper, they actually have, at least the West Indian manatees, which you find in Florida, they have toenails on the ends of their flippers. And it looks very similar to an elephant's foot that has like toenails on it. It's just a weird thing that you can kind of see on both of them. So it's like, oh, there's that in common, you know, but literally nothing else, you know, is they're they're interesting. Why don't you show us here? You brought oh, a little yeah. picture. I'll put, I'll put one up on the stream, but so this actually shows the little feet that I was just talking about with elephants and manatees. Here, I'll put it up. That's a manatee right there. And that's his closest relative. <laughs> Very cool. And then this is a hyrax. They live in Africa. And this is another relative of the manatee. Yeah. You know where you can see the resemblance? Yeah, <laughs> they look so similar. But very cool. So where, I mean, they're very common down here in, in Florida. And a lot of people love the manatees because they're, they're also very cute. Yeah, so. very cute. And generally, you know, very docile and friendly. So they're very charismatic in that way. So they kind of, they pull at your heartstrings a bit. They do. They do. I remember when I was younger going to this aquarium and they had this tank filled with manatees. And then you see them also on the waterways. And here in the Key, you can find them sometimes in the bridge where the master of the master, master bridge. bridge. Yeah, that's sometimes a common you place. you see them, right? They like to hang out there. I have seen them very often at the Yacht Club, um, hanging out among the boats. On Virginia Key, there's Rasmus Campus, the Rosensteel School. I've seen them off the dock there, too, or hanging out in that area. So there's a few places that they kind of favor to just to, you know, hang out. I have seen them passing through the tip of the island at Bill Baggs, but they didn't stay there. It was just, you know, passing by. But, you know, you'll, you'll find them, especially in the summer and spring, in areas where there's a lot of seagrass because that's what they're looking for to eat. So I think that's, you know, areas where there's slower moving water, where you have seagrass that can accumulate. That Those are always good places to look for them. So I pre-podcast, you were telling me that there's different types of manatees. So what kind of types of manatees? There are three species of manatees that are currently alive. Uh, there was four that have been discovered by humans. And then there's one species, like I think I mentioned earlier, dugongs. They are related to manatees, but they are the only ones that live near Asia. They, they live in the Indian Ocean and Western Pacific. They also, manatees, if, if you've seen them, they have a very sort of rounded paddle-like tail. And dugongs have flukes on their tails like a dolphin does. So they look, you know, there's a slight sort of difference. But otherwise, as far as like their nature and uh, dugongs tend to be a little bit more, I think, reclusive, but they also live in warmer waters. The three types of manatees that we have here, they're all in the Atlantic Ocean and uh, connected tributaries. There's the West Indian manatee, which is the one that we all know from Florida. Um, and around the Caribbean. There is the West African manatee, and that one's found in the sort of central and northern coast of, of Africa, West Africa. And then there's the Amazonian manatee, which is the smallest, and it's the only one that's only freshwater. The other ones can be in freshwater or saltwater, and it literally just lives in the Amazon and any tributaries that connect to the Amazon. And it's very, very small. <laughs> they, I think they grow maybe seven feet at most, whereas the West Indian manatee grows nine to 10 feet and like can be up to a thousand pounds. Although there have been and some that have grown up to 13 feet and weighed 3,500 pounds, so they can get quite large, actually. And then the West African manatees kind of in between the two. There's also, there was the stellar sea cow, which was the only manatee found in cold water. Um, it's not really a manatee per se, but it's in the same order, Serenia. It was found in the Northern Pacific, uh, Northern Pacific and the Bering Sea, uh, so very cold water. 
the Bering Sea is where you see uh, those people that those have that dangerous job, that crab fishing that they do up there. And like, they, you know, there's ice and people fall overboard all the time. That <laughs> I can't remember the name of that show. And they were discovered. They're huge. They were huge, I should say. They could be as large as a whale over 20 feet long. They were discovered in 1741 and were hunted to extinction by 1768. They were extremely docile, very, very friendly. And they made a really like easy food source for hunters that were up there looking for otters for pelts at the time. And, you know, at that time, there was very little consideration for overfishing or overhunting whatever animals that people were after. And because they just made a really easy and ready, readily available food source, they were just hunted out very quickly. And, you know, they would take a long time to reproduce. So within literally 27 years of being discovered, they were hunted out. And they also uh, had a fluked tail similar to dugong. So Something about evolution on that side of the planet gives them fluke tails, and this side of the planet gives them paddle-like tails. I don't know what that's about. So those are the different types of manatees. Stellar sea cows are gone, but the other ones are all still around. But all of them are either endangered or threatened. Their numbers are not ideal at this point. And I think that's that's a good uh, point to make for the next question I have for you was the protections of manatees. You know, I, I know there's some laws out there. There's there's some things we can do, cannot do. And then, uh, of course, a lot of people who do boating know that they have to be slow in certain areas because they are very close to the surface. But can you expand a little bit on what type of protections manatees have? Yes, there are two federal laws that protect them and at least and the, the one state law. So there's the Marine Mammal Protection Act of 1972, and that obviously extends to all marine mammals, not just manatees. And then the Endangered Species Act of 1973, because also, as I mentioned, most of them are either endangered or threatened. And so they have special protections under the Endangered Species Act. So those are the two federal laws. The state law is the Florida Manatee Sanctuary Act that came about in 1978 and makes it illegal to hunt or harass manatees in any way, because they were actually hunted in the country. I think there was a, a, a predecessor sort of law that was passed, I believe it was like 1893, that actually made it illegal to hunt manatees at that time. But the uh, the Sanctuary Act made uh, put more protections for them in place. So as far as laws, that's what exists. We've also, we've also included pl- things like slow speed zones in certain areas, so, so ma- places where manatees tend to hang out or uh, pass through during their various seasons where they travel quite a bit. You know, during the winter, they tend to go inland a little bit more into rivers and tributaries because it's warmer there. And so you'll find them very packed sometimes in some places. Crystal River is actually a good place to see them because during the winter, because they're cold and it's warmer there and they have quite a good food source, or they used to. That's that's a different issue. <laughs> we'll get into that later. But then during the summer when it's warmer, they spread out a lot more. And so they have these sort of like transitional areas where they pass through. And those areas also will have the boating speed signs everywhere saying, you know, manatee zone, watch your speed. And that's because boat strikes with manatees are, are extremely common. And then, you know, just under the Endangered Species Act, you can't harass a manatee or just be in its general area too much if if it's clearly being stressed or anything like that. You can't touch them. You're not allowed to touch them. Which sometimes can be hard because sometimes they'll come up and touch you <laughs> and, and, you know, you're just like, well, what do I do now? Like, but it's just basically, you know, you keep your hands to yourself and the manatee is allowed to do whatever it's doing and just kind of try your best to stay out of their way. That's, you know, the best advice. But, you know, if it comes up and grabs your your paddleboard or something, then you just kind of have to wait for it to go away. But yeah, so it's just, you know, it's a matter of just like giving them the space that they need and trying not to hurt them with things like boats and stuff like that. Because the manatees are... are harmless, right? They're super docile in terms of us. Yeah, they're not predators. They're completely vegetarian. I mean, they can, if they really are like startled or in a hurry for some reason, I think they can get up to like 20, 
30 miles an hour in the water, but that's very rare. They don't usually do that. They're usually just kind of loafing around and maybe swimming at like five to 10 miles an hour to get from one place to another. And yeah, they're harmless. Like they they won't bite you. They won't like, you know, hit you with their tail or do anything like that. They're usually just, if anything, they just want to be left alone. They're very docile. And I think that's another reason that people like them because they just hang out and they're adorable. Like I said, charismatic. <laughs> what are a couple of threats that manatees face? One of the major threats that, especially here around Florida, are boat strikes. One of the reasons that they instituted, you know, the slow uh, boating areas, the manatee zones. So a lot of people, when they see a manatee, they assume it's similar to a whale because they look so like round and fat that they have a layer of blubber the way whales do, but they don't actually. They have skin and then they have muscle right underneath that and then bones. So when they get cut by a propeller, for instance, that literally is cutting into their muscle like immediately. That if it's deep enough, that will just kill them. Boat strikes also, obviously, depending on how fast the boat's going and how big of a boat it is, can easily just kill them just from the impact. You know, it can break bones, break their spine, or if they get hit in the head, very devastating effects. And boat strikes in Florida have become so frequent that basically almost every manatee is expected at some point or another to get a propeller scar. At least this was true, you know, several years ago when I had first started looking at like into manatees. Maybe the protections have gotten better since then. I kind of don't think that they have. Propeller scars now are often used to identify individual manatees because it's very unlikely that two different manatees are going to get the same propeller scars. And because you they, you know, you basically expect almost every single manatee to get a propeller scar at some point in in its life. It's a way of like keeping account and keeping keeping track of, of individual manatees, which is a really sad kind of depressing way of keeping track of them. But that's the reality because there are literally thousands and thousands of boats all around Florida and, and you know, certain times of the year like in the spring and summer when like it starts getting warmer out and people want to be out on the water. And then or you have things like the, the boat show, things like that. You just get more and more people out on the water. The more people that are out there, the more likely it is that you're going to have somebody that's not paying attention to the rules or not being careful. And so you you end up with more accidents like that. So that's that's one of the major threats for manatees or boat strikes uh, around Florida specifically. I can't necessarily speak for the, the rest of the Caribbean or any other place for that matter. Aside from boat strikes, there are also entanglement problems. And usually that's due to nets or fishing line that's left in the water. That's a huge problem. One, it can affect their ability to swim, in which case they can't surface and they may suffocate. But the more common problem is fishing line that gets wrapped around their flippers. And in some cases, it'll get so tight that it will they'll sell, it can self-amputate a flipper. Or even if they're rescued and brought to a rehabilitation center, they may have to amputate anyway, depending on how bad it is and how infected it might be, things like that. And a manatee can live with, with only one flipper. But, you know, it's ser it's a serious problem, obviously, people not keeping careful track of their, their fishing line or throwing it in the water and things like that. So it's... It's like telling someone, hey, you can live with one kidney, but it's not ideal. Exactly. Yeah. You don't want to. If you if you don't have to, you'd prefer not to. That's certainly a huge problem for them is entanglement. Um, and that's, you know, a continuous problem. It does, doesn't seem to be getting much better. There's always educational programs like telling people to, you know, take your fishing line with you, make sure that you don't leave any, don't leave, like throw it on the beach. Earlier when we had been talking about turtles, I have seen like I we've released hatchlings that were caught in a nest or found in a nest that we evaluated. And I remember watching one and he was just heading straight to the water and then he suddenly stopped and he's just flapping around in one spot. And I was like, well, what is he doing? And I went and looked and his head had gone under a little loop of fishing line that was in the sand. 
and he was just stuck there and he couldn't, you know, they don't they don't go backwards. Once they swim into something, they can't back out of it or in this case, run into something. And, you know, obviously I pulled him out and let it go. And then I took the fishing line with me. But that it's that simple. He's just going and fishing line is almost invisible, especially in the water. And they just don't know any better. It's just a matter of people understanding it's not OK to just throw things overboard or leave things when you're out trying to be you know, do whatever recreational stuff you're doing. It's a very easy fix. I mean, obviously, sometimes there may be an accident where like it blows overboard or something. But but for the most part, it's just carelessness. And that's an easy fix but it's a huge problem. Aside from that, there is red tide and other like toxins in the water. Red tide has been getting worse and worse in more recent years. And there's research being done as to why, but it's very likely linked to the use of fertilizers and fertilizers that get washed directly into the Gulf of Mexico. And that creates like a larger red tide. Red tide is a natural phenomenon and it does happen quite frequently. And it's, it is, it's not uncommon and it's not unnatural, but the extent of the red tide has become sort of unnaturally large, probably linked to fertilizers. I don't want to say that with certainty because I'm not entirely sure, but it's very likely linked to, at the very least, human activity in some way. And so we have these really bad red tides. And basically, red tide is toxic to, to us, too. It's toxic to everything. And it's immediate. If you happen to go out near the water and just like the ocean spray starts irritating your skin or your eyes, like it's immediate. You're like, oh, that's a red tide. You feel it right away. And in that way, it's kind of a good toxin because you're like, oh, I need to get out of here and you leave. A manatee doesn't have that kind of luxury. It swims into the red tide and doesn't necessarily know where to swim to get out of it. And it immediately feels the effects also. And it, it causes like lethargy, weakness and neurological effects and they don't always recover from that. There's been a lot of manatees in the last several years when we've had really bad red tides that have been found alive and rehabilitated and then released again. But if they're not found, then, you know, you know, it, it will kill them very easily. And since our activities are likely causing these like worse red tides that we're getting, again, that's just another problem that we are causing for them. You know, they don't really have predators per se, not around here. They stay in shallow waters. They don't go in deep waters because they need warm water. The farther out from the coastline that you go, the colder the water is going to get. So they stay in, in fairly shallow waters all the time. So like a shark attack is extremely unlikely, you know, might be an easy target for a great white due to their size. It would have to be a big shark because a smaller shark that's five, six feet long is not going to go after a 10 foot manatee. So it's really just us <laughs> causing them a lot of problems. And then the last issue that they're really facing right now is loss of food. And again, that comes down to a similar thing like the red tide. It, it's a water quality issue where we're sending chemicals and, and all kinds of stuff into the water and creating like lower water quality. And that is killing off seagrasses. And there may be other causes to the seagrasses dying off, but it's there's been like massive seagrass die-offs in the last like 10, 15 years. Just enormous amounts of their food supply has gone. In the last cup, or what was it, 2022, they had what they referred to as, I think not mass casualty, but it was basically like a mass die-off of manatees. There's a huge number, like more than 800 or something died in, in one year. They were finding manatees were starving. So they started a feeding program, which is not ideal because you don't really want to feed wild animals and get them used to that. But there was no other choice because there isn't seagrass enough for all of them. So they started feeding them lettuce. And even that initially was like kind of difficult because they're not used to feeding at the surface. They eat the seagrass off the floor of the water. So that like getting them kind of 
used to doing that took a little while. And they, they stopped it at the end of 2022 and then started it up again at the beginning of 2023 because they still didn't have the food. As far as I know, it's still ongoing. I'm not I'm not sure. But that's that's another like huge problem that they're facing right now is a food shortage. And there isn't any like good fix to that, you know, other than cleaning up the water and hoping that the seagrass can itself recover. They have a lot of, of obstacles that they are trying to overcome. And we are the cause of basically all of them. But we can also be the solution. Just it will take a massive effort, but it's not impossible. All of these things affect other animals and eco, like basically the entire ecosystem overall. Seagrass is home to all kinds of animals. We used to find seahorses in the seagrasses off of Key Biscayne all the time. And it's so rare that you see one now. The seahorses are very fragile animals. Like they can't handle bad water quality. And that is like a constant problem. You know, we, in the past, we've had years where we have constant beach closures because of bacteria found in the water. What's causing that is, your guess is as good as mine. There's a lot of different theories as to what's causing that. Probably it has something to do with us because a lot of the problems seem to have something to do with us if you trace it back far enough. And yeah, so cleaning up the water, being more careful with boating, being more careful with like fishing line and things like that. These are all like fixable problems. I should say. And it, it's just a matter of actually taking the steps to do it. And it, it'll take a long time too, but it's not impossible. And I agree with you. I remember taking doing a summer camp at the at the Seaquarium once when I was young and then we would go to the little beach right next to it. And then you would we would scrape a little bit with a net and you would see what kind of animals you picked up and you'd release mm -hmm. them. And then at the be off the beach, you wear your, I used to wear little snorkels and you would go to the line of the grass. And there would be like little, little shells of like hermit crabs and the little ones. And I was okay. Like that was very cute. So what can we do if we see a manatee in distress or who do we call or... How does the whole rehab aspect of it work? So rehab has to be done, obviously, in specialized facilities that are equipped to handle large mammals, marine mammals like that. You mentioned seeing them at the Miami Seaquarium. Those are manatees that are being rehabbed. They don't, as far as I know, they don't house manatees there. I don't know. I don't think they have any permanent resident manatees there, but they do manatee rehab. They're one of the facilities that can do that. There are a few others that do it. There's the Zoo Tampa at Lowry Park. SeaWorld Orlando does rehab. Uh, Jacksonville Zoo and Homo Springs Wildlife Park. They all do manatee rehab and there might be other places that, that do it also. And, you know, transporting manatees is, is kind of a whole other thing, but obviously left best to the professionals. What they have is a network. So there's there's a number you can call. I'll give you that number. But once you call it and you you if you happen to see a distressed manatee, you can call it in and then they have a network of marine mammologists that are all connected and they all get alerts when something like that happens. And then whoever is closest will head out there and see if they can do anything to help immediately. Or if not, then they will get a crew out there to catch the manatee and transport it to a facility if it needs rehab. So that's kind of the way that it's handled. And so the phone number is through the FWC, the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission. It is 888-404-FWCC. And that's uh, 3922. So 888-404-3922. And that's the FWC Wildlife Alert. So you can use that number to tell them about a distressed manatee that you see or an injured manatee. You can also, same thing if you see a distressed or injured sea turtle. It's, you know, it's the wildlife alert. So anything that you see where wildlife is being harassed, seems to be sick or is injured or something like that then you can call that number, relate where you are, the location, whatever details you have, and then they will handle it from there. And like I said, for manatees in particular, they have uh, marine mammologists are connected to um, an alert system when they get a report of an injured manatee or an injured dolphin or something like that. It's like being on call if you're a doctor. You know, you get paged essentially saying, hey, there's this issue, this is where it's at. And then if any of them are, you know, within 
like a certain distance of that location and they can go, then they will go and investigate and see what's going on and then figure out what they need to do to help. It's nice to know that kind of system exists and and it's useful to, to know that number. You know, like I keep the wildlife alert number in my phone just in case, you know, I spend a lot of time on the beach doing the turtle stuff. And even stuff, if you find a dead turtle or a dead animal, they still want to know because they, they track especially with manatees, they track every single manatee death that they can. It's possible that they might miss one, but they do aerial surveys and they go out into like these very difficult to access areas and stuff. And it's all to keep a very, very careful count of the manatee population. If you find one that has died, even it's still a good idea to call that in. There's educational programs that people can be involved in. There's the Save the Manatee Club. Um, you can adopt a manatee through that. They'll send you information about, you know, whatever manatee that you adopted. I grew up in Indiana. Manatees at that time when I was younger. This is, I think I was in high school. They were my favorite animal in the whole world. And I'd never seen one in real life because I was in Indiana, but I saw them, you know, pictures and stuff online. And I was like, oh my God, they're so cute. Like, I just absolutely love them. And just reading about them and how docile and they just seemed really sweet. So I started doing research and I found the Save the Manatee Club online and I borrowed money from my parents. <laughs> <laughs> and and I joined and I adopted a manatee named Philip. It feels a little silly, but it's actually, you know, all of that money goes towards education and helping manatees in, in any way, shape or form that they can. It's worth it, definitely, especially for younger kids that are like that are interested in uh, marine biology, just to give them sort of more information and more things that are more tangible for them to kind of read about and understand. That kind of educational program is great. And then there's, uh, let's see, there's the Friends of Manatee Lagoon. That's another uh, educational program. I don't know as much about it, but they're all about educating the public about manatees, whatever obstacles they have and, you know, things that you can do. November is Manatee Awareness Month. You'll see a lot of stuff on social media telling you all about manatees. And there's a documentary called Before It's Too Late. It's a manatee documentary. Very educational. It's not as striking as Chasing Coral, which I don't know if you've seen that documentary. It will make you cry. <laughs> You really feel for the coral in, in that documentary. It's really sad. It's a really, really well-made documentary, Chasing Coral is. The Manatee documentary is, it's definitely educational and interesting, but it may not quite catch your attention as well as that one, but, but it's worth a watch for sure. Especially for, again, for kids who might be interested in learning more about manatees. I think it's, it's a good watch for that. And then, you know, just basic things like boating carefully, like be aware of your surroundings, follow the signs that say it's a manatee zone. I saw the Coast Guard pull somebody over in two jet skis and a boat a couple weeks ago for like flying through a manatee zone. Good. And yeah, I was like, <laughs> I was sitting at the bar at the Rosensteel School campus, which is like right on the water and it's basically right on Bear Cut. And it was in that area. That's a, that's a slow zone there. And we saw them and like, you know, I'm sitting there with a bunch of other marine biologists. So we see that and we're all angry about it. And then we saw them immediately get pulled over and we were cheering. <laughs> they were so excited. Like, yeah, that's what you deserve. <laughs> a manatee can also unseat somebody who's on a jet ski because it's that small. If you hit a manatee, you might hurt or kill the manatee, but you might also go flying off your jet ski. And that's like dangerous for you. What if you go flying off your jet ski and hit your head on something and then drown? I mean, that's entirely possible. So it's, you know, it's a matter of safety for everybody also, uh, not just the manatees, more so for them, but really for everybody. You know, so so just a matter of like boating carefully, being aware of your surroundings, paying attention to signs, being careful with your fishing line or nets or anything else that you put in the water, making sure that you take it with you and or any trash that you have. There have been cases of manatees like ingesting plastic and stuff because it's in the seagrass and they don't really distinguish between things. 
you know, and that obviously can be toxic for them or it can cause bowel obstructions and stuff. Reducing your use of fertilizer if you own a home. Uh, you know, honestly, in Florida, I don't really feel like we need, we get enough rain that usually like your grass is going to grow just fine. Fertilizer is barely needed here. People just really, really overuse it. And, you know, just reducing that even a little bit. And there are some areas that have actually put ordinances in place that say like you can't use fertilizer at all during these certain months. And it's for the reason that the fertilizer is being, was being overused and then washed into waterways and causing a lot of ecological problems, which, you know, appreciate that that's something that they've actually paid attention to and then made, you know, laws or ordinances about. It, you know, it's also something that individually anybody can easily fix that problem themselves, just using less or not using any at all or using natural fertilizers, banana peels soaked in water. I mean, this is more for houseplants, but I feel like you, there are things that you can look up online that wouldn't be that difficult to do if you wanted to make your own natural fertilizers. Probably cost less too. Other things that are basic for, for really anything that you want done is like civic engagement. Contact your legislators about, you know, I, these are problems that I think you're not addressing properly. Write letters, be annoying, be a squeaky wheel. That's the best way to get things done. So that's always the for, for anything, let alone manatees or any other endangered species. I mean, it's important that like for people to be involved in their government and make their voices heard because there are things that, you know, everybody gets mad about stuff. But then if you don't actually do anything, take any steps or any actions to get yourself heard or make these issues more well known or make people aware of them, then, you know, what good is it to be mad? That's not going to help anybody. Rumi, it's been great to have you on the show to learn about manatees. We have a closing question here for you. What is your favorite part about all this nature stuff you've been doing, which is pretty cool, by the way. <laughs> this has been awesome. Yeah, you know, it's been kind of a weird path to get to where I am now. Nature and the environment, animals has always been an interest of mine, you know, since I was a kid. It's funny because I think a lot of kids go through this where they, you know, when you're little, you're like, I want to be a veterinarian because I love animals. And then you learn that you have to put animals down sometimes. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, never mind. <laughs> like, I don't want to do that. I definitely went through that phase. Yeah, I don't know. I The more I just started like looking into things, um, I used to go for like hours were long hikes in the woods in Indiana where I grew up. I'd follow deer trails and, and things like that. Just kind of being out in nature just has this sort of, I don't know, innate effect on on your mind. It's so calming and it's peaceful and it just really makes you feel connected as, as cheesy as that sounds. You know, it's one of the nice things about the turtle nest evaluations that I do is that we're out at sunrise and that's when we start and the beach is empty and it's quiet. And, and you're literally, and you're looking for signs of nature. You're, you're looking for signs that turtles have come up on the beach and like this natural process that happens and has been happening for millennia, basically like millions of years. Just, it really like gives you a, a more of an appreciation of the ecosystem like locally and the earth and just how things are connected, how they work. So so there's a lot of things that, that I really like about it, but I think getting to do like field work, being outside, like actually in nature is probably my favorite. My next favorite thing is stuff like this, you know, talking to people. I do a lot of uh, public speaking. Um, you know, I, I do a lot of that. We, I give a lot of presentations. I used to teach a uh, an online climate change course, just the basic science of climate change um, for Denver University. It was for a continuing studies program. So generally senior citizens and stuff. But, you know, it was, it was a fun course and people were really, really interested in learning, you know, because you know, it's one of those things where people don't necessarily hear about climate change, but you don't really understand it. It's a very large sort of existential problem that, you, you know, you can't really wrap your brain around. 
And just kind of understanding some of the basic things about it can can give you kind of a whole new outlook. And again, it, it helping to understand the interconnectedness of everything. Having this kind of opportunity to talk to people and educate people. And, and people get really excited when they learn new things. You didn't know about the, the starlight with, with turtles. It's always exciting when you learn something new and you're just like, wow, that's really cool. And, and I love that. I, I work with kids quite often in, in my job and they get so excited about stuff. And it, it gives me sort of a new appreciation for my job because, you know, things that are just secondhand to me that I'm just like, yeah, well, I've known that for years, you know, but they're just like, what? Oh my God. You know, like they get so excited, these little like six and seven year olds. And it just is like, yeah, it is actually really cool. Like, thanks for reminding me, you know, that's what I like about my job. It's, it's very interactive and and also continually just gives me a new appreciation for everything around me and the environment and, and nature. Awesome. Ramya, thank you so much for coming in the show and, and sharing us your story and, and your work. Awesome stuff. Thanks for having me. The Academy of Martial Arts in Kiwis Game, more commonly known as RDCA, is proud to have served this island paradise for 27 years. Join them for a free introductory class to kickstart your martial arts journey. RDCA is a family-run business headed by Sensei Robert Dusoglu with his daughter and son, Morgan and Derek, both senses as well. With over 100 years of combined martial arts experience between the Dusoglu senseis, RDCA provides a holistic approach to self-defense, covering a unique blend of stand-up, close-quarter combatives, technical groundwork, weapons training, and traditional form. Over 3,000 students have walked through the doors and trained at the mat at RDCA in the last two and a half decades. You can call them at 305-365-0129 or visit their website at rdcamma.com for more information in the show notes.